0: Welcome to Cato Audio for December 2020. I'm Caleb Brown. In this month's offering, Cato's Emily Eakins examines the value of the presidential polling that, though broadly erroneous, at least got the outcome right. Political strategist Liz Mayer details the virtues of divided government and where voters came down on some key issues. And Jeffrey Manny of the International Center for Law and Economics takes a look at the merits of the antitrust case against Google. First up, this month's Cato Roundtable. People were happy. People were disappointed at uh, the presidential election uh, and how it turned out. Um, We're still waiting for, as of this recording, we're waiting for a few results Uh, to come back in. But one thing that was, I think, a pretty resounding success were a lot of measures at uh, the ballot box that were initiatives where uh, voters could weigh in directly on uh, matters of policy. Uh, To talk about this, I'm joined by two senior fellows at the Cato Institute, Walter Olson and Michael Tanner. Uh, guys. Thank you for uh, braving the technical difficulties in putting this recording together. I much appreciate it.
1: Pleasure to be with you again.
0: So, um, Michael, let's begin with you. Uh, California is no stranger to the initiative, and there were a few on the ballot that relate pretty strongly to the work you're doing with uh, Cato's California project. Uh, One of those related to a piece of legislation, AB5, I believe it was called, that uh, limited some freelancers' ability to earn an income, and especially during a pandemic, uh, that law had some real teeth to it. So what did voters say about it?
1: Well, voters uh, approved an exception to the limits on gig work for essentially Uber and Lyft drivers. It was highly funded by the rideshare industry and voters overwhelmingly approved it. Uh, What's particularly interesting is that between the carve-outs that were in the original legislation, the carve-outs that the legislature has added throughout the year, and now the approval of a carve-out for rideshare apps, uh, I think this only applies now to something like yoga instructors and newspaper delivery. It's really, uh, been neutered uh, in in terms of what it was.
0: Uh, uh, Walter, let's understand what this law did. It, uh, as I understand, I saw some video early on after this uh, law had, had gone onto the books from musicians performing at, at uh, clubs. So you can tell how far back that was many months ago, but they were complaining about this. And I know people who were engaged in journalism, who uh, found themselves in a In a a tight spot with respect to how they could earn money as well.
2: Well, journalists, in fact, were some of the first ones to get the word out about how bad the new California law was. And uh, it had uh, rigid and highly inclusive rules for who had to be turned into an on-the-payroll employee instead of an independent contractor, a certain number of gigs per year, which for someone, for example, who contributed to a biweekly publication that was out-of-state, they might have to be turned into uh, an employee of that out-of-state magazine. And uh, this was was highly restrictive. Of course, for many of the intended targets in the business world, it was easier to cut off California freelancers than it was to uh, take on all of the burdens of being a California employer, uh, especially if you're not located in California. So lots of work dried up for editors, photographers, uh, for uh, columnists and uh, contributors of all sorts to uh, the online and non-online world.
0: I want to clarify something. Uh, Working living in california and working for an out-of-state entity your ability to earn money and pay income taxes in california was strictly limited
2: you know hubris is what did icarus in uh when he tried to fly to the sun and these california legislators uh enacting a law actually drafted by labor unions um didn't know where to quit they didn't know the sorts of um, humility, like, you know, let's only try to uh, regulate transactions within California that might have lessened the public backlash, might have let more of it survive over the long run. And this will be studied all over the country because of course, uh, what the unions tried to get in California was not just in California. They tried to get similar laws in New York and New Jersey, uh, both of which ran into considerable political opposition even in those liberal states. And the big prize, uh, there is a bill called called the PRO Act, endorsed by President-elect Joe Biden, which would try to do the same thing federally. And uh, for various reasons, its chances have to be seen as much, much less good than a month ago.
1: We should note that this was a highly unpopular piece of legislation with the workers it was designed to help. Uh, It's true that Uber and Lyft spent an enormous amount of money on advertising and things of that nature in order to push this exemption. But the drivers themselves didn't like it because essentially uh, they were, they were being cut loose, uh, uh, Uber and Lyft were actually threatening to leave the state. But even if they didn't, they were being told that if you want to be considered an employee, you were going to have to work 40 hours a week. You were going to have to, you were not going to have the freedom to come and go, which is one of the big appeals to these sorts of gig, uh, gig jobs. Uh, so, so essentially this was hailed as kind of pro worker, but the reality was workers weren't very happy with it. <laughs>
0: What are some of the other issues that were on the ballot in California this year?
1: Well, interestingly, there was a couple of criminal justice initiatives that went in opposite directions. One was an attempt to repeal some previous criminal justice reforms that had uh, changed the number of crimes from felonies to misdemeanors and had, had basically done a lot in terms of reducing the prison population in California. Uh, there was an attempt to repeal that. Uh, that failed, uh, essentially. Uh, and then at the same time, there was an effort to sort of get rid of cash bail uh, that also failed. But I should note that the cash bail initiative was kind of split the criminal justice reform community. Uh, it would have done away with cash bail, but it would have created this uh, sort of checklist approach to how whether or not people got bail. And there was a lot of questions about what would be in that checklist, who would qualify for bail, a lot of criminal justice reformers thought that this was just sort of a, a a different way to reinstate bail through the back door. So it didn't have the full support of the criminal justice reform community. But overall, I, I think this was a good step in the right direction for criminal justice reform in California.
2: Walter, go ahead. And on bail reform, in fact, um, I'm one who has been signing the caution all along that although um, there is a good way to do bail reform. There are also uh, badly planned uh, and uh, badly executed ways, and uh, some of the bail reforms that have been done in other states have resulted in uh, throwing the thing into judges' laps in such a way that they minimize their own political risk by doing by detaining more people than would have uh, been detained under a bail system. Another big issue
0: at the ballot box this year was not just cannabis uh legalization for either medical or recreational purposes but drugs more broadly when you include Oregon in that list so walter what were the what were the items on various state ballots uh and how did they perform
2: it was a remarkable night for calling a piece in the drug war. Uh, You had marijuana measures on several state ballots, including both medicinal and recreational marijuana, passed everywhere. Uh, It passed in states like Mississippi and South Dakota, which you would expect to be among the most conservative uh, and the slowest to change their law. It passed everywhere, basically. Uh, Significantly, there were measures on hallucinogens, in particular magic mushrooms and related compounds uh, in uh, the District of Columbia, and I think in Oregon also, uh, which passed. And then uh, significantly Oregon tried something relatively radical, uh, which was to uh, decriminalize uh, the possession of small amounts of anything. And of course, federal law still applies. This is not true drug legalization, but it is more than I think any other state has tried with some of the more controversial and unpopular drugs. And everyone will be watching closely to see how this proceeds in Oregon.
0: Yeah. and In particular, uh, in Oregon. Uh, not only did they legalize the possession of small quantities of a wide variety of drugs, the, specifically with respect to uh, psilocybin, psilocybin, whoever you say it, uh, their law was, uh, the initiative was fairly detailed in terms of providing avenues for therapeutic uses of that chemical.
2: And that is interesting because, of course, there's been a lot of scientific literature suggesting valuable therapeutic uses for those substances. Uh, You see a split here. You can describe it as an experiment, Brandeis style of laboratories and democracy, between the uh, legalize and regulate approach, uh, which you just described, and the approach taken in Washington, D.C., which was to knock it down to the lowest possible enforcement priority for law enforcement. And uh, the drug reform community is itself split. Some believe that uh, inviting legalization with regulation will bring in some of the problems of regulation, perhaps favoritism in the channels of who gets entitled to distribute it uh, or other uh, high taxation or other problems. Others believe that that's worth putting up with for the other benefits of true uh, measures toward legalization. So it will be interesting to see how the two different approaches work.
0: So what would, uh, just out of my curiosity uh, to both of you, what would you look for? to see whether or not this experiment that, that Oregon has embarked upon is successful?
2: Well- one thing that people look at uh, with taxed marijuana, for example, is, is there much of a black market left? Because if they legalize it and then uh, slap a very high tax on it or restrict distribution in a monopoly way, then you wind up with the black market anyway. If there is a substantial black market, then you know that uh, something didn't go as promised. Um, I would also look at uh, what is the distribution via legitimate medical channels? Um, you know, Is that going to happen anyway in DC, even though they didn't purport to legalize that. And in general, it's possible to figure out what price people are paying effectively. Economists are good at this. And I always love to turn to economists analysis of drug policy because they know to look at things like prices. They will often tell you whether a policy has had no impact or perhaps more impact than it intended to.
1: We'll also have to look at what the federal government chooses to do uh, in this regard. They've made the marijuana industry very difficult, for example, by blocking banking, And things of that nature. There's been minor but sporadic attempts to try to enforce federal uh, criminal sanctions on some growers and and such. Uh, You you could see the same thing here, particularly in Oregon with their decriminalization measure. If you start seeing uh, federal uh, marshals or whatever intervening there, you could have problems, Uh, particularly if they define distribution and dealing in such a broad way that it sweeps up large numbers of small users or small time dealers. So it remains to be seen.
0: One uh, technical note here uh, in Mississippi, at the very least, they legalized uh, medical uh, cannabis and South Dakota, I believe, legalized recreational cannabis. And that was against, as I understand it, the will of the political class in South Dakota. Is that right?
2: I think that sounds right. I haven't looked at the details, but these are states where, even though you have a lot of people using the substance, uh, getting the political class to uh, catch up with the state of the debate has sometimes been a challenge.
0: One other uh, notable thing here, Massachusetts and Alaska voted on what's known as rank choice voting. Um, Walter, how should libertarians feel about rank
2: choice voting? Well... On this, as on so many topics, it's okay to be libertarian and have many different uh, opinions. Uh, I kind of like ranked choice voting and have said so um, for those who are just catching up with this. It's a system used in Quite a few American cities used now for federal races in the state of Maine, where it was used for the Senate race this year, and used in many foreign countries, in which instead of just going in and putting an X uh, on your favorite candidate, you get to pick a second choice, a third choice, a fourth choice. And then, as minor party candidates from the bottom of the results are eliminated, their second choice votes are redistributed to the candidates who did better. And occasionally that will change an outcome. It didn't change an outcome in Maine, where uh, incumbent Republican Senator Susan Collins won outright without having to check the second choices, but it, it does sometimes change the outcome in cities where the mayoralty, for example, is approached that way. Now, from a libertarian standpoint, uh, a couple of brief points. First, uh, this is tends to be terrific for uh, those who are agonized between voting for the, a libertarian party candidate or another candidate who is unlikely to win but comes closest to representing one's true views, uh, and and alternatively influencing the outcome by picking one of the two candidates likely to win. Ranked choice voting lets you make your statement by voting for the candidate you really do believe is best, and then also influence the outcome uh, through your second and third choice votes. So no wonder the Massachusetts Libertarian Party loved it, and I would expect Libertarian parties to love it everywhere. But it's more than just that. Uh, Economists have been analyzing voting processes for centuries and uh, the usual complaint, there are many complaints, of course, but uh, in our first past the post system, as it's called, very little information is submitted. Uh, There is sometimes a pretense that there is a left-right political spectrum that captures everything important about the candidates and the issues. We as libertarians know that isn't so, but uh, you get to uh, put in a tiny pellet of information, which is the least horrible candidate. Uh, And even then you may be swayed by fear of uh, one bad candidate uh, winning rather than actual enthusiasm for the second best, rank choice voting allows you to insert more information about your true preferences. And uh, that's why I would expect it to uh, be a more intelligent system and its outcomes. And I just want to add that uh, Massachusetts did not, in fact, enact ranked choice voting. Uh, haven't seen the results from Alaska yet, which are still being counted, but that was a disappointment. Nonetheless, it is advancing fairly rapidly at the local level.
0: One of the thoughts that I had, and I don't know how uh, well represented this is in, in the data on ranked choice voting, which is uh, if a candidate has high negatives. They might not get a lot of second-choice votes, uh, and it, it, if if a, if a candidate has relatively high negatives, even if they have high positives, um, being nasty uh, in a campaign could potentially really work against someone
2: there's a lot of speculation that it might change not just occasionally who wins but also how campaigns are conducted because people uh want to be nice to the uh fans of third party uh candidates they want to get those second and third choice votes and in Maine. uh On the one hand, it was a very, very negative campaign between the two major candidates. A lot of that was driven by outside spending, of course, which is not necessarily within the control of the major party candidates. But uh, that might have disproved that. And yet the third party candidates in... Man, and there was one from the progressive left and there was one from the uh, constitutionalist uh, stop gun control side. Both of them had materials instructing their own voters, um, uh, cast your second choice for, and you can guess, the progressive wanted it cast for the Democrat. And the constitutionalist said, please cast your second choice vote for Susan Collins. So uh, the communication is inevitably changed. And in other countries where this has become more uh, familiar from decades of use, uh, they at least sometimes will say about their system, yes, uh, our candidates are more careful with each other um, because they want those second and third choice votes. Uh, And of course, when you're running for a city council or something, sometimes the winners will wind up serving with each other, which is another reason to uh, keep the gloves on.
0: Back to California for a moment. San Francisco voters had uh, Proposition H on the ballot that uh, was supposed to streamline the process of business formation in uh, San Francisco. How did that turn out?
2: Well, it turned out well from my point of view. Uh, San Francisco has been the subject of some really remarkable Uh, coverage of the nimbyism by which you try to open an ice cream shop or something innocuous and the permitting, which in the San Francisco system, your competitors, someone who's already got an ice cream shop uh, in the neighborhood, can come in and file objection after objection, slowing you down for uh, half a year or more and costing you uh, enormous amounts of money. Well, this was something where not only uh, did some reformist business people decide enough was enough, but... Uh, San Francisco Mayor London Breed, through her support uh, to the reformers, uh, this is not ideal. I believe it's a temporary relaxation, but it will give San Francisco a chance to see at a time when the pandemic, of course, has had tremendous challenges to keeping uh, stores occupied. It will uh, make San Francisco less Martian and more like uh, the the rest of of the uh, more like Earth as far as the burdens that it places in front of people who want to start a new retail business. Yeah, so it's almost like a certificate of need for uh retail it's just crazy especially after people could see it being abused by incumbents uh who didn't want the competition rather than by whatever you might see as innocent nimbus you know someone worried about noise or or traffic or something it was baldly being used by the uh for anti-competitive reasons and it's taken this long to even get a temporary relaxation so, San Francisco does set a bad example uh, for um, cities that are rich enough to get away with very bad policy.
1: I would say that, however, it was not all good for business in, uh, in San Francisco because San Francisco voters also approved an excess pay for executives tax uh, at the same time. So. Uh, The ice cream shops did pretty well, but uh, Google executives didn't do nearly as well uh, when it came to things of that nature.
0: What's the likely impact of that, Mike?
1: Well, it's going to drive uh, some high paid executives to uh, the suburbs, which uh, ultimately will end up costing San Francisco money. You want those folks living in your city. Uh, They spend a lot of money there. They, uh, They pay taxes there. And it's not going to be that hard for them to move uh, across the bay. Uh, uh, so I think it's, it's short-sighted. It was, it was more symbolism than I think is going to have any impact on revenues.
0: So how did rent control as a concept, as a regulatory framework, do at the ballot box?
1: Well, for the second time uh, in, I believe, two years, rent control went down to an overwhelming defeat. Uh, It was a little bit less uh, one-sided this time than it was last time. I think that has something to do with the pandemic and the number of people facing evictions, and there were some worries about that sort of thing. But still, voters embraced basic economics and uh, understood that uh, that rent control was simply going to result in more housing or less housing and uh, more deterioration in their housing stock and things of that nature. So they went with it overwhelmingly. Uh, it was also uh, sort of undercut by the fact that the legislature put in a very weak key rent control on their own that, that sort of made this unnecessary. Uh, but the legislature's rent control is about as weak as you can get and still have rent control in there. there. It's sort of a vacancy key control with a certain percentage increase that's allowed. That was fairly high. I think it was around 7% allowed. So so basically uh, voters didn't see any real need to do uh, do something really
0: dumb uh to both of you uh taxes were on the ballot for voters in two financially uneasy states uh one illinois and the other california walter what what happened in illinois
2: in Illinois, Governor Pritzker attempted to um, get through a strongly progressive income tax change, uh, staked a lot of his political uh, credit on it, and voters turned it down. A uh, very significant win uh, against uh, big government there. In California, there was uh, a carefully designed attempt to weaken Proposition 13, the original tax revolt initiative, by decoupling residential from commercial tax rolls, leaving alone the residential, which of course has been very popular with many California homeowners over the years, but saying that taxes could go up on the commercial side. And that was quite close, but it did fail eventually. So um, the teachers unions that were um, uh, some of the most conspicuous backers had to take consolation in when they did have an Arizona next door, um, increasing taxes on high earners. Even that one, though, they had to worry about the fact that it had pulled extremely well and then it hit an air pocket and nearly lost by the end. I think if the opposition had uh, gotten a little more um, outside support or even inside support, Arizona might have beaten that one too.
0: Mike?
1: Yeah, outside of taxes, I think there were several symbolic victories that were really worth taking note of. That's the fact that in Alabama, they removed uh, some racist language from the state constitution that had been hanging around since the uh, the 1890s or so, and uh, they finally got that got rid of that, uh, which is good. Uh, in Mississippi, they voted on a new state flag that removes the Confederate battle flag emblem from their state flag, and that passed overwhelmingly.
0: And to be clear, it's a it's a lovely flag.
1: Yes, the new flag actually is a nice flag. And then finally, uh, in uh, Nevada uh they removed language that bar that banned uh constitutional amendment that banned uh gay marriage and uh, same sex marriage and they they took that out uh only a few years after they put it in so uh so basically, I think the voters were expressing uh some very uh egalitarian preferences which i think is wonderful
0: walter uh and we'll close with this there were there has been a movement uh it seems to have slowed a little bit to put what's known as Marcy's law on the books in various states and these are laws that are nominally about uh giving additional uh, abilities to uh crime victims to i uh, have some oversight i suppose over uh what happens to people who are charged uh and then and then those that are later convicted of certain crimes Uh, I'm only aware of it because I live in Kentucky, and that was uh, the state that had it on the ballot Uh, this time. The Supreme Court has weighed in on this.
2: Well, the Supreme Court has weighed in on related issues. This is one where Kentucky was the state this year that had it on the ballot, but it has earlier appeared on ballots in other states, and it tends to be a popular favorite because who could be against victims' rights? Uh, unfortunately, uh, those who study the criminal justice system realize that the various versions of Marcy's law endanger due process rights that we have struggled hard over the centuries to ensure to criminal defendants and sometimes to others. And let me get into the details on that, because if it were just a matter of being notified of this stage or of being told how a case came out, yeah, you can do some of that uh, consistent with the rights of the other parties in the system. But Marcy's Law Uh, And the details vary from state to state, but often Marcy's law uh, purports to say that uh, designated crime victims um, have a right not to have their own information shared um, uh, or or made public uh, and that they have a right to certain time limits they have a right to get things over with faster now let's start with the, the second one um criminal defendants of course have a right to a speedy trial but they also have a right to a full appellate review which may take longer than arbitrary deadlines for how fast something needs to be over it's very alien to our spirit of due process to say that criminal cases have to be over within some period. So right off the bat, you've got problems uh, in running a fair justice system. Uh, The information side, creates all sorts of problems. And uh, uh, one problem in principle, which I don't see how they get over, is that until the legal process has had a chance to hear the evidence and reach a final uh, adjudication, you don't know whether someone was a crime victim or not. They might be an accuser uh, who was in fact victimized by some other uh, criminal than the one on trial, or might not be a crime victim at all because Uh, they'd misreported uh, innocently or otherwise what happened to them, Uh, or perhaps they were mistaken about uh, what the law required of the person they they dealt with. So um, right then and there, it, tags as a crime victim, um, thus leading to radiating kind of uh, prejudice through the proceedings. Uh, someone who the law has not yet established actually is a crime victim, but that's only the start of the problems. It denies, uh, depending on the details, it it often denies uh, the investigators who are trying to construct a defense for a criminal defendant uh, access to information about uh, who the Uh, crime victim is exactly where they live, what statements they've given to the police, lots and lots of information that may be relevant. Now, sometimes there is um, a procedure by which they can try to override it or they can try to get the judge's attention. Nonetheless, it takes out of the judge's hands a lot of balancing between privacy and uh, legitimate Uh, need to mount a case that judges have always, I think, rightly prized. And it creates a presumption in favor of, uh, no, you generally can't have the information, even if you say uh, it's your path to finding uh, favorable witnesses for the defendant and that sort of thing. In recent years, uh, it's also developed that uh, this helps Unfortunately, police who are accused of misconduct in various situations, because what you have is two way crime accusations in which um, the police officer is accused of using excessive force, but also is accusing perhaps the same person that he or she injured of having uh, you know, used force, wrestled or, or shot. Battles.
0: Assaulting a police officer. It's a pretty common charge.
2: Assaulting a police officer, it it happens a lot, and it's often very hard to prove until you go to trial whether or not uh, someone was assaulting or was trying to defend themselves uh, from uh, uh, being taken into custody in a non-assaulted way. But the... um, So what you have, a a casting of a cloak of invisibility over um, part of the process, uh, enabling uh, police officers to keep their own identities secret because they, after all, are also crime victims in their own narrative.
0: One issue on the ballot in, again, in California, uh, California sure loves ballot initiatives, uh, was how various members of racial groups are treated by the state. Uh, in In various capacities what was the what was the final result there Walter and what was the initiative about?
2: California had earlier passed an initiative uh barring the state from using racial preference uh it, most conspicuously in university admissions in the state university system, but also applying to other areas of state action, such as hiring and promotion of state employees, did not apply to the private sector. This was only state action. And uh, California voters by a wide margin had uh, told the state that it had to uh, effectively be race blind. It had to ignore the opportunity to award racial preferences in those areas. Uh, Lots of discontent among some progressives who mounted a ballot initiative to try to reverse that. It was soundly defeated uh, by a wide margin. It carried only, I believe, in San Francisco County and lost in every other county in California. And it was Uh, notably unpopular with many of the same minority voters who it was uh, allegedly designed to help. They didn't like it either to uh, open the door to explicit racial prejudice or preference.
1: Yeah, the breakdown in uh, the way people voted, I think is particularly interesting and could portend uh, future problems for sort of the broad civil rights coalition. You had Asian Americans who were overwhelmingly opposed to it, uh because it would have done a lot in terms of locking asian americans out of a lot of these uh, california universities right now they are disproportionately likely to attend and they would have been hit hardest uh, by this but also the latino community uh voted uh, largely against it uh, so you're sort of splitting off the uh the minority communities uh the black brown uh Asian communities uh, from each other in these things. And we could be seeing a lot more of that as, as you sort of get into more of a spoil system.
2: And in fact, in the black community in California, it was it was not especially popular. It had more popularity than in the Asian and Hispanic groups, but very, very, very far from unanimity. So uh, and that's a pretty consistent poll finding, which is that there is skepticism um, uh, not Uh, equally across different racial groups, but among all racial groups, there is a great deal of skepticism of having the government explicitly discriminate by race. The the Supreme Court has to be aware of that as it looks at some of these cases.
0: So we can say with some confidence that uh, ballot initiatives on balance in 2020 did a service to liberty, but uh, we should also be careful about endorsing the ballot initiative generally. Is that that your view, Walter?
2: Well, it is my view, because if you take a longer view of California, some pretty bad laws have gotten through the initiative process over the years, uh, some laws extending regulation uh, in various areas, and the thing about the initiative process, although it differs from state to state, but in California, it's very hard to go back and correct the errors or perhaps the deliberate little time bombs that were put in that voters didn't know about. You are kind of at the mercy of the good faith and the drafting skill of whatever outside group drafted an initiative, and so it can be inflexible. Uh, It can wind up taking the state down an attractive uh, blind alley from which it is hard to back out. So uh, I would just say temper your enthusiasm. You can uh, get some great results, especially sometimes when it's negative, when you're stopping a bad idea. Uh, But uh, you will also find, as with every single thing the government does, there are unintended consequences.
1: I will say, though, that this year, at least, uh, it tells us a little bit about where voters may be. That even in a state like California, which went two to one for Biden, deeply blue, uh, you had voters by and large rejecting regulations and government uh, involvement to things speaking out towards more free market. In Illinois, you had them turning down taxes and some deep red states. You had them uh, taking civil liberties positions, uh, whether on the drug war or on some of these other issues, we, symbolic issues we talked about. What you're seeing is voters that don't seem to be lining up neatly uh, with the red-blue divide the way they're supposed to uh, and are generally taking a much more libertarian outlook on uh, on the issues than I think either of the candidates uh, at the federal level or in these uh, Senate races, congressional races are speaking to.
0: All right. We're going to leave it on that positive note. Walter Olson, Michael Tanner senior fellows at the Cato Institute, and you can read some of our uh, post-election analysis at our blog and elsewhere. That's all on our website, cato.org. The polls were off in the presidential election. Sound familiar? At least this time, pollsters called the outcome of the presidential race correctly. So, what can we learn about our fellow Americans based on what happened at the ballot box in 2020? Emily Eakins directs polling at the Cato Institute. We discussed election 2020 for the Cato Daily Podcast. Okay, so uh, you do polls. Uh, I assume the fact that really smart people. Who do this uh, every day, like you, for a living, getting it consistently wrong, points to a problem in the methodology of polling. I've heard a lot of stuff from Republicans that I know that say, "Yeah, I just lie to pollsters," <laughs> but I I have a hard time believing that that is something that is going on in on a large scale.
3: Right. Well, so let's 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 walk through some of the different theories and hypotheses. So um, one that people really went to in 2016 was, you know, was the sampling off in 2016, um, a lot of pollsters, as well as APOR's uh, report on what happened in the election, you know, really looked a lot, looked closely at uh, the composition of who was polled, particularly the concern was that white voters without college degrees were under sampled, Especially in those blue wall states of um, Pennsylvania, Michigan, and Wisconsin, because that's those kind of are they they're correlated. They kind of go together in terms of the how you want to sample the likely voter turnout. Um, and so they thought, okay, this time around, we're just gonna you know bump up that segment of the population because that segment was you know more in favor of Trump than some other segments. And so that was why they thought they were off. So they'll just increase the share. And they thought they'd solve the problem. So this time, when Biden is up by, you know, eight points on average, eight and a half points, they say, look, you know, we've got, we fixed our sampling problems from 2016. So this is probably legit. This is probably realistic. Um, but, okay, so that was, but that was already solved. So like, what happened this time around? So some people will probably go back and say, you know, was there, was sampling off, Um I think that's probably a less compelling explanation for this time. You know, you could use it in 2016, but can you also use that in 2020? I'm not sure. Another explanation that Nate Silver mentioned recently on his podcast, I think probably could have played some role, is that um, the pandemic um, probably impacted who's at home. Um, and we, you know, pollsters did find that people were a little bit more willing to, to take surveys. So response rates rose, but we do know there was a political asymmetry in who was willing to take this and you know, take, uh, sorry, staying at home and not going out and socializing as much as usual. So Democrats are more likely to be quarantined at home, avoiding outdoor act, you know, social activities and Republicans were more likely, not completely more likely, but just a little bit more likely. Right. Um, so that that's that's a plausible explanation as well. It seems like it's probably more than one. Um, the other is were people lying to the pollsters. You know, this is the, this is I would call the shy Trump voter theory. One, um, where are we're pollsters calling people on the phone and people just not wanting to admit who were they were voting for. Um, but there's a problem with this theory. It would be more plausible if. Only Trump underperformed the polls, but Republicans across the board underperformed their polls, right? Even in the Senate, we see the same pattern. So, and and the House. So, like, why would people be lying about voting for Susan Collins? She's not particularly controversial. So that leads us to um, the hypothesis that I'm leaning towards. Um, I call this the shy Trump voter uh, non-response problem. What if people who are voting for Trump aren't even answering the phone, that they're not even clicking the link in the survey to take the survey? Now, this is not always the case. There have been other years where polls were pretty on the mark, Um, like 2018 was pretty on the mark. So it's not like this is a consistent problem. It's not like some people are all, well, there are some people that are systematically less likely to take surveys than others, but there was something added this time around. And so one one way to kind of investigate that is I would, you know, turn your attention to some of the post-election studies on the shy Trump voters. If they were if there were shy Trump voters, who might that have been? And one way to look at that is you look at the polls and compare them to the exit polls. So the polls are like the surveys that were conducted going into the election and then the exit polls conducted as people were walking out of the election place or people who were contacted who had mailed ballots in. Now People could still lie on the second survey, um, but maybe people would be a little bit more honest um, if they just voted. Okay, so what were the differences between those samples? Trump overperformed among white voters with college degrees, particularly those in more affluent suburbs. And that is precisely, as it turns out, the, the types of house seats That flipped from Democratic to Republican when people had thought, oh, you know, those are trending blue. They're going to go bluer this year. So college-educated white Republican voters are seem to be the more likely group to not be telling to either to not take the survey at all or to not want to tell the truth. So I'm more in the like the non-response camp of theories here. And so that means those, I'm worried that these people just weren't even taking the survey. And so then you have to ask, well, why, why are these individuals not taking the surveys, but, you know, let's say, you know, white voters that with, without college degrees were fine, more, more willing to tell pollsters what they think. And as it turns out, we actually did some polling, Caleb, this summer, we talked about it, that I think happens to speak directly to this issue.
0: A lot of this seems to add up, at least to my mind, as statistical noise caused in part by a pandemic and uh, the changing of the methods of voting for people. How how, am, how can we say with any confidence how much of an impact that had? I mean, how do you do exit polls in this environment?
3: Right. It's hard to do exit polls in this environment. So what they did this year, the Edison exit poll was they, they, they did what they normally do, you know, placing people outside of, out of polling places. And what they do is they'll stop every, you know, let's say 10th person, every 20th person. So it's randomly selected and ask them to take the survey. But as you know, you know, Republicans are more likely to vote in person at the polling booth and Democrats who are more concerned about the pandemic were more likely to mail their ballots. So what Edison did is they worked to contact people who had requested absentee ballots you know, to vote by mail um, or people who had voted early and um, contacted those by those individuals by phone. Um, So it was a little complicated, a little bit tricky. So people were a little bit concerned that these exit polls might not be as accurate as other years. Um, But that's how that's how they were working out. Uh, That's how they conducted the exit poll this year.
0: For pollsters going forward, where do you even begin? I mean, the, the, it, it, you obviously there's a methodological problem that is consistent, it appears, and do, do a lot of these problems evaporate with the disappearance of Donald Trump from ballots in the next, well, at least two years?
3: I think it depends Um, for those who point to the noise of this election, you know, the pandemic affecting samples and maybe the sampling got off. You have to ask yourself, well, why were they off in the same direction in 2016 with the same candidate at the top of the ticket? How come they got it wrong on Brexit? Do they have anything in common? I would argue, yes. Research has shown that attitudes about Trump and especially people who voted for Obama in 2012, but switched their votes to, to Trump in 2016. Um Concerns about immigration and globalization played a big role, and a lot of people think that that's what Brexit was about. Um now, Daniel Hannon has said and has really, you know emphasized that Brexit was about uh, you know, regulatory regulatory control and having sovereignty over your own affairs. But many people thought it also had to do with with globalization and immigration and not having kind of control over your borders and things like that. So maybe there's something, you know, going on there where voters are afraid to talk about, controversial issues about immigration, identity, globalization. What does it mean to be a citizen of a particular country versus like a global citizen? And I think that, you know, we talked about this a little bit before the podcast, Caleb. but I think that there is kind of a widening divide between people who work in Kind of elite institutions in the media, in entertainment, in universities, people that are talking on television, people writing at the most prestigious um, print journalism outlets like the New York um, Times—they have a particular view of the world, and I would argue have kind of narrowed the boundaries around what people are allowed to talk about, what questions they're allowed to raise when it comes to these sensitive issues. For understandable reasons, they're doing that because they're trying to help promote pluralism and peace and getting along. I totally get that. The issue is, is that with a lot of fast paced change associated with globalization, people are going to have some concerns along the way. It's only to be expected, but people who have those concerns know, especially those college educated ones that are paying attention, right? They know that they're not allowed to talk about those concerns. And if you're not allowed to talk about it, you're not able to kind of get some resolution. You know, maybe some of the concerns a person has could be wrong, but they're never gonna learn that. They're never gonna know unless they can talk about it. And people ask them, well, why do you feel that way? You know, what evidence do you have? And kind of do, kind of go back and forth, right? Um, and so that brings us back to some of the survey work that we did this summer. Um, Cause I think people wanna know well, why are college educated white voters maybe not taking surveys systematically? Um, As much as other types of voters. And in our survey this summer, we found that 62% of Americans say they have political views they're afraid to share, and that these concerns were, I would say, I would use the word asymmetrical, meaning that the more conservative you are, the more afraid you are to express yourself the more liberal you are, the more comfortable you are to express yourself. And I would argue it's because individuals in elite institutions tend to reflect more of a progressive liberal worldview. And so that they kind of set the tone about what questions you're allowed to ask, what conversations you're allowed to have. So this survey was, you know, really surprising. It got a lot of attention, partly because even liberals, were also a majority likely to say that they felt like they couldn't share their views. You've got liberals, moderates and conservatives all afraid to express themselves and only kind of progressives, the strong liberal left, feeling like they could actually, you know, talk about politics.
0: Emily Eakin's direct polling at the Cato Institute. While this election left many people sad and happy, for libertarians it might end up being a relatively happy outcome overall. Divided government. With a U.S. Senate likely to stay in the hands of Republicans and an incoming Democratic president, the fights over spending and debt will again take center stage. Liz Mayer, a political strategist in Washington, D.C., says there are some opportunities for bipartisanship in the direction of less government. You write at The New York Times that you suspect libertarians are broadly pleased with this election. Why is that?
4: Yeah, I believe that's right. There are a couple of reasons. I think the main one is that, as Cato itself has observed um, in, I think, quite a few policy papers, but certainly one that was produced taking a look at Trump's first term, Um, Generally, having unified control of the federal government, um, or at least legislative branches in the White House by one party, tends to not be very good in terms of controlling spending. Um, It tends to be when you run up big deficits, when you increase the debt, when you are just spending lots and lots of cash. Um, And we saw that in Trump's first term. Um, You know, we saw that during George W. Bush's presidency, And one of the things that's interesting is when you look at, say, the Obama presidency, when particularly when you got into a period when he was having to deal with a Republican Congress, um, or if you go back and you look at the Clinton years when he was having to deal with Newt Gingrich in particular, that was actually when spending really came down. Um, And of course, we know under Obama that various fights um, about government shutdowns uh, and other budgetary fights resulted in the sequester. Um, which is really Joe Biden's handiwork. Um, He ultimately was tasked with finding a solution to this sort of gridlock. And the one that he came up with was the sequester. And that was really his job bringing that over the line. So I think when you look at the overall result where we're going to have a Biden presidency, coupled with still a less Republican Senate, but still a Republican Senate And a slightly less uh, strong Democratic House majority, it bodes pretty well in terms of spending. Um, Now, there are other aspects of that, too. I would say that, you know, libertarians were not happy about the mechanism by which Barack Obama established DACA um, to protect certain dreamers. But... They also were not happy about the way that President Trump went about dismantling it and have been very aggrieved about the fact that Congress can't actually seem to get it together or won't get it together to pass any form of immigration reform, um, particularly to protect these people. Um, and then, you know, I think one of the biggest grievances of all that libertarians have with the Trump presidency is, you know, it's not like Democrats traditionally are particularly great when it comes to being um, adamantly pro-free trade. But, you know, Donald Trump made these people look like the most hardcore free traders on the face of the planet with all of the various trade wars that he sparked and bad deals that he cut that, you know, from his perspective, maybe were marginally better because they contain things like wage protections. But were really very anti-free market and very anti-trade. So all of that could get better under a Biden presidency strapped with a Republican Senate and a slightly less Democratic House.
0: Yeah. Uh, during the uh, Trump years, Democrats at least according to polling, seem to be more free trade than ever.
4: Correct. Right. And so, I mean, a lot of that is, I think, that uh, people align their views on things like trade um, and foreign engagement to whoever is leading the party at that particular moment. Um, I mean, we've seen that with a lot of polling about where Republicans sit on these issues. It used to be that Republicans were very staunch free traders. It used to be that Republicans were big supporters of NATO. Suddenly you start looking at uh, Donald Trump leading the party and all of those numbers flip, right? So that obviously has had an impact on how Democrats see this too. But I think it's pretty clear that Democrats are going to want to give their president trade promotion authority if he's asking for it. I think it's pretty clear the Republicans were very uneasy about going ahead and extending that to Donald Trump if he won a second term. Um, I think they will be much more comfortable doing that with Joe Biden. I don't think um, there will be some people who in the party who are going to want to still take a more pro-fair trade, so-called fair trade position, um, and hold back on that trade promotion authority. But I think overall, um, the Republican Party still, in terms of its elected officials, remains largely pro-free trade. And so they will be interested in doing that as opposed to getting into a position of micromanaging all these deals.
0: What do you make of the claim it was made by Walter Block in uh, the Wall Street Journal uh, just today, I believe, uh, saying that the margin of difference between Biden and Trump in a few key states that Biden won uh, was exceeded by the libertarian candidate and thus uh, the Libertarian candidate, Joe Jorgensen, effectively handed the presidency to Joe Biden.
4: Yeah, I, we go through this every time we have a viable or not, not even a viable, but a, a sort of notable third party candidate. Right. Um, we had this debate with Ross Perot. We had this debate with Gary Johnson. Now we're going to have it again because of extraordinarily high turnout. Um Every piece of data that I have seen has indicated that it is totally erroneous to work on the presumption that people who vote third party would naturally be inclined to vote for just one candidate or overwhelmingly just one candidate if that third party person were not on the ballot. Um, And I think certainly my experience working in politics has borne that out. Um, It is true, I think, that Ross Perot being on the ballot did force George H.W. Bush into some positions and forced his team to make some decisions that they do feel ultimately contributed to them losing that election against Bill Clinton. But when you look at the actual numbers, they just don't stack up. When you actually look at electoral college votes and where the candidates would have been if Perot hadn't been on the ballot, it's shockingly more even in terms of who takes what than what the, the George H.W. Bush team has ever wanted to admit. And then, you know, you go ahead and you fast forward and you look at the Gary Johnson effort in 2016. I was a Gary Johnson voter in 2016. I just don't think that that's correct based on my own personal experience. Um, I wouldn't have voted if Gary Johnson hadn't been on the ballot. I would have been writing in. I would not have voted for either Donald Trump or Hillary Clinton. I said consistently the whole way through that election that it was my very strong view that there was a probability that within 10 years, either or both of those candidates would end up wearing an orange jumpsuit. And I'm not voting for somebody like that. So, you know, I've had a lot of people say, oh, well, that meant that, you know, you gave votes to Clinton. No, I've had people say, well, that meant that you gave the election to Trump. No. Also, I was voting in Virginia and realistically, Virginia, Clinton was going to win by five points. So, you know, the Gary Johnson movement was significant in terms of sending a message, I think, to both political parties that they need to pay attention to libertarians. But I do not believe that it was enough to actually switch states. Um, You know, and so, yeah, again, having worked on that effort, looking at uh, a real survey of sort of how those voters, um, fellow Johnson Weld voters, felt about this, um, you know, yeah, there are some who, like me, would have written in or would have refused to vote, um, and there are others who would have gone to one candidate or the other, but every piece of data that I've seen indicates that it was pretty evenly split. If you held a gun to people's head and said, pick one you would have had pretty much 50% picking Clinton and 50% picking Trump. So I, I don't believe with this, this year. Maybe there are a few more people who could have gone to Joe Biden. I think possibly rather than voting third party, there are a couple of people I know who, if JoJo hadn't been on the ballot, probably would have gone ahead and voted for Biden. I don't know really anybody that would have gone to Trump otherwise.
0: The response that I've seen from a, a lot of Republicans has, uh, you know, they're obviously upset to the extent that they uh, supported uh, Donald Trump for president. They're upset that the uh, Libertarian candidate exceeded the the vote margin between uh, Biden and Trump, but uh, and to the extent that people believe that that was a relevant factor, uh, given the number of votes that went that way. Is does that provide, in your view, a sufficient context, uh, sufficient uh, incentive for either of the two parties to say, "Hey, we we should do something to uh, get these voters into our fold," or, or do you believe that maybe these people just aren't gettable at all?
4: I think some of them aren't gettable, um, but I, you know, as far as incentives, it's difficult. Ultimately, when you're working on a presidential campaign, you've got to put a coalition together and the sad reality is that in this country, libertarians are not the biggest block of voters. And so we're not going to get catered to the way that other constituencies do. But with that being said, you know, I remember, you know, I saw my former boss, Scott Walker's tweet about this. um, You know, I can't remember if it was the morning after, but I, you know, after Wisconsin was called and I sort of thought, A lot of people were ragging on him and saying, oh, well, you know, he was making the erroneous assumption that everybody would have gone to Trump otherwise and sort of blaming libertarians for the loss. I'm not 100 percent sure what he was what he was saying with that. But the way that I interpreted that was what you're saying, that the parties need to find a way to cater a little bit better Because when you look at those margins, if you assumed that most people in Wisconsin who voted third party would have otherwise voted Trump, and I don't know, maybe they would have. Maybe he has that data. He is the former governor. I do not have the same data he does. Um, But I think that there are people out there who seem to have alluded to that possibility. And I think that you can read his tweet as being one of those things that does.
0: Liz Mayer is a political strategist in Washington, D.C., The case against Google may be a bipartisan one, but is it a good case? The Department of Justice, along with 11 state attorneys general, filed their suit to stop Google from maintaining so-called monopolies in the search and search advertising markets. Jeffrey Manny of the International Center for Law and Economics says if Google's a monopoly, why do they pay billions of dollars each year to companies like Apple to give Google search prime positioning on new devices? How did we get to this point with this uh, big lawsuit against Google being cheerled by uh, many members of the Senate and many uh, activists who believe they're being treated poorly uh, by the company? And and what led us here?
5: Well, I think you're right to point to non-antitrust sort of origins here, but I wouldn't suggest that there are no antitrust origins to the suit. Um, so, so, let me take it in kind of two parts. Uh, on the one hand, what has led us here is, as you suggest, a political a sense that there is political value in criticizing and hamstringing and showing aggression against these large tech companies. Um, we can and should go into more of the details of the reason for that, but let's just you know just leave it there for now. There is a, Clear political impetus behind this, and of course, as has been pointed out many times, this particular suit was not actually handled by the head of the antitrust division at the DOJ. It was it was led by uh, the attorney general himself. There's uh, been some stories about some resistance from long-term staff members in the the antitrust division uh, to this suit. Uh, suggesting it's not quite ready for prime time. In any case, uh, it's clear that the politics is partly behind this. Part of the background, I should also say, if if listeners don't know, is the very recent release of the House Judiciary Committee's uh, report, staff report, competition in digital markets. This came out earlier this month. It was signed not by any members of Congress per se, but it was a, a staff report. And it's full of all kinds of claims of, of, you know, parade of horrors that these companies, not just Google, have uh, visited upon the world. Again, uh, not a very strong antitrust argument being made in in most cases in that report. Uh, But but apparently, the perception that there's political value in in making these arguments. So to the extent
0: that this case continues to move forward, what are the Substantive substantive claims that are being made that uh, uh, the proponents argue is makes this a
5: legitimate antitrust case. Absolutely right. There is a legitimate or or um, you know a colorable antitrust claim here, and and it should also be noted um, this case probably isn't the last that we'll see against Google, um, there is a case in the works being being worked up by uh, a number of Democratic state attorneys general. Th- this this suit, for, for those who don't know, was brought by the Department of Justice, but also signed on by uh, a few Republican state attorneys general. There's a separate case um, allegedly being drawn up by Democratic state attorneys general. And yet another case um, on a different part of Google's market that's that's in the works apparently being led by uh, the Texas uh, Republican attorney general, but also apparently with interest from other states. So those may be political as well, of course, but these are folks who are you know, who have reputations that are uh, they seek to protect and, and who know something about antitrust. And that goes for the DOJ to some extent too. So yeah, there's a real meat to the substance of this.
0: Evaluate this statement in light of the relative controversy surrounding it. The first rule of antitrust is to define the relevant market.
5: Yeah, I think it's uh, not remotely controversial. That is certainly Um, the beginning of any antitrust case, and it's particularly relevant here. This case was brought um, against Google search. Google obviously has a lot of uh, services that it offers, but in this case, the issue is allegedly uh, it's monopolization of the general search market. Um, So the DOJ defines the market, It, it defines a couple of relevant markets here. There's the general search market, that market includes Google and Bing, and DuckDuckGo, and you know a few other general search providers, but doesn't include anyone else. Doesn't include anyone who provides any sort of specialized search service. Uh, doesn't include uh, Siri, which is powered by Google, but but has different functions. Um, the second market the DOJ defines here is a search advertising market, and and that's where we start to get um, and things get a little bit messy and particularly important. This is what's usually called a two-sided market. Search offers functionality for users. We all know it well. Um, searches also offers functionality for advertisers. It's a mechanism by which advertisers can target potential consumers and, uh, and reach them. Uh, so according to the DOJ, there's a, a sort of a separate market for the consumer-facing side here, those of us who use Google search. Um, And then another market that would presumably affect advertisers, the search advertising market. The argument there is that uh, Google, um, you know, controls this uniquely important advertising market that doesn't substitute for other advertising markets and has the power to raise prices, presumably to advertisers.
0: All right, so what is the claim in suggesting that uh, Google has this power within
5: the search market?: Yeah, so so here's what's what's so interesting about the the relevant market definition in this case. Um, the argument is that Google has power market power in the search and search advertising market. Um, the weird thing is that the arguments in the case all turn on having power in the search distribution market, if if there is such a market, in the mechanisms by which um, uh, search services are distributed to users. Um, So uh, perhaps most obvious among these would be uh, your browser. When you open up your browser, um, it has a default search service usually built in. And if you don't want to use the default service, you can change it to another one or you can always navigate to the, the homepage of a different uh, search provider. So the browser is a uh, distribution method for distributing search. Uh, your phone is another method. Most phones, maybe all phones, come with a search uh, service sort of built into the default. Uh, well, the, ser- the phone comes with a browser and that browser has the default search service built into it but also if you have uh, an android phone there's a you know sort of a separate box uh, for google search directly from the home page of the phone and something comparable exists on iphones as well so the the argument in the case is that uh, google has tied up the mechanisms of distribution of search such that Competing search services, let's just say Bing. Bing is the most obvious competitor here. They're, kind of the, they're going to be the stand-in for the competitors who are allegedly harmed here. Bing can't reach consumers because um, Google, had, we'll talk about how, but Google has, has monopolized, tied up this search distribution market. But this is the weird thing. Google's alleged market power is in search. It's, it's not in the distribution of search. Um, and as I started to point out, there are lots of ways that you can get access to uh, a general search provider. And Google doesn't own very many of them. And uh, certainly it would, I think, be pretty hard to argue that Google has a monopoly share of distribution mechanisms, um, some of which are literally owned by Apple, a pretty substantial share, of which are literally owned by Apple. Microsoft itself, which owns Bing, also a pretty substantial player in the uh, in the search distribution market. So um, we can talk more about the, the sort of theory of the case, but I think it is right to point to this market definition question and start to wonder exactly how the case is being constructed uh, when the alleged market power exists in a market, where the bad behavior doesn't seem to be occurring if google has a monopoly in
0: search and uh must depend on uh, other companies for the bulk of the distribution of that search that is through browsers and uh, other means what connects them what what would uh, the antitrust case connecting those things be
5: yeah, so let's use um, the Apple iPhone as representative example here. Um, we can talk about other distribution methods, but that one's sort of the cleanest. Um, the argument here is that Google pays Apple uh, something on the order of $11 billion a year to be the default search provider on iOS devices, so iPhones and iPads. Um, By paying this $11 billion a year, uh, Google gets this default position on the iPhone. This is what it buys. What that means is that um, when you get your iPhone from the Apple store and you turn it on, uh, Bing is not pre-installed on that phone. That's it. (laughs) There's no exclusivity agreement. There's no requirement that um, prevents Apple from allowing users to install Bing on their phone. Uh, There is nothing that uh, requires Apple to prevent users from changing the default search provider. And indeed, it's quite easy to do so on, on iPhones and on Android devices. All Google gets for its $11 billion payment to Apple is a, you could say, um, a very, very brief exclusionary period. In other words, the period between when you turn on your phone and however long it would take you to install a different search service on your phone, let's say 30 seconds, um, Google has has absolute control over search on the phone for that period of time. And it pays $11 billion for the privilege. Now, what's so what's to me kind of a red flag in this is um we don't we don't usually see monopolists paying someone else 11 billion dollars as a consequence of their monopoly 11 billion dollars a year now you know, there's there's a story you can tell here it's all about preserving their monopoly power um but this is where this this kind of strangeness of the mark of the market definition comes into play apple maybe has a, uh, a monopoly, well, Apple has a monopoly over Apple devices. Now, that's not a relevant antitrust market. But you know, Apple controls a substantial share of this distribution market. They I think it's I think, I can't remember if it's 40 or 60% of uh, smartphones in the US are are Apple devices. That's a big share. Um, but that's Apple's share. That's that's not Google's share. And Google maybe is trying to sort of take advantage of uh, enter into an agreement with Apple to um, uh, use its power to preserve its own power. Um, But if so, it's doing a really bad job of it because all it's buying is this, let's say, 30 second exclusionary period after which um, Apple is not in any way prohibited nor users from installing other search devices, other search services on the phone.
0: And it could be potentially damaging for Apple to cripple its devices in such a way that that is an exclusive
5: arrangement. No question that Apple would have no interest in, in. well, I shouldn't say no question, but I, I mean, I'm sure at some price they'd be interested, but, but uh, I don't think Apple has an interest in uh, preventing users from installing, from using other search providers on its phones. Um, and yeah, indeed, it's Apple's, interest in preserving the quality of its devices and its you know sort of ecosystem uh, that perhaps imposes this constraint but then let's you know be aware um, that's something that usually comes with having power right that's you know if Google really had market power wouldn't it be able to impose on Apple a, a requirement that it hobble its devices in such a way that it, um, uh, it gives real exclusivity to Google? Um, you know, another, so, so that goes to this, you know, sort of market definition question and where the power lies and whether this is a, 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 a viable, um, case on its face. Um, but it also starts to get to the question of, uh, of sort of the, well, the extent of harm, even if it's true, even if all of this is true and, and there's no problem in the way the market is defined and, and this is indeed exclusionary conduct, what's the harm here? Um, uh, so there's a, there's a kind of a a simple version of this, which is, which just says, um, Bing can't get sufficient distribution, uh, to reach enough consumers that they use Bing. They just, they don't know it exists or something. I don't know exactly what it is. I mean, obviously people know Bing exists, but, um, but that's a weird argument, uh, because it's so easy to change the default. Uh, as long as people know Bing does exist, and as far as I know, everyone knows Bing exists, if they think it's a better search service, they can just install it on their phones. The cost is essentially zero. Like I said, it's like 30 seconds of time, a couple of clicks on your, on your phone. Um, so, so what's the harm? Who's being har- how is Bing being harmed here? Um, and if Bing isn't being harmed, how are users being harmed? How is Apple being Apple Apple's certainly not being harmed. Where do you expect this case to go? great question i um I, I don't think very much of this case i i, I think it's a poorly constructed case i i, I think in particular the um the, the fact that there is no real foreclosure of of distribution by competitors pretty much decimates this case and makes it um a non-starter um well, i shouldn't say a non-starter but but makes it a non-winner so I have to wonder whether the politics is what really predominates in the in in this case, and that once its political value is passed, um, its actual legal value kind of disappears, and and the case doesn't go anywhere. Um, I think that's a possible outcome. I you know I'm not very good at predicting the future, but um, uh, you know I think it's not coincidental that the case was brought just before the election. I you know we already talked a little bit about the political background of it. Um, And uh, at least as it's currently constructed, I don't see this case being uh, something that that anybody puts a lot of weight behind. Jeffrey Manny
0: is the president of the International Center for Law and Economics. The COVID-19 pandemic has upended our daily lives and transformed the political landscape with governments at all levels exercising emergency powers rarely seen outside the context of total war. With so much at risk, what's needed now is sober, realistic assessments of the choices ahead, the guide to policies that can stem the damage while avoiding permanent transformation of American life and law, The Cato Institute aims to meet that need with its new series, Pandemics and Policy. The series of essays provides policymakers with an actionable guide to policies that can harness ingenuity and foster a resilient society capable of meeting the challenges ahead. Read the Pandemics and Policy series at Cato.org. That will do it for this edition of Cato Audio. I'm Caleb Brown. Talk to you again next year.